Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organizational, and human sides of the major issues facing public value organizations in the current world, and particularly the current COVID-19 crisis. Our series focuses on the different ways the COVID-19 pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organizations. And we discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia through response and recovery. Cube Group acknowledges the traditional owners on the land in which we work. Cube's offices is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of the land on which we work and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to Aboriginal Elders and community members who may be listening today. For more information on each episode of the podcast, please visit our website, cubegroup.com.au. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Today is June 9th, 2021, and for many of us here in Victoria, it feels a bit like back to the future, but hopefully for not much longer. A little over a week ago, Victoria entered into another lockdown, the fourth of the pandemic, in response to an outbreak that has now spread to some 60 people. Initially a week long, the lockdown has been extended for a second week. Victorians are now returning to our home offices, our home schools, and to the lockdown routines that were very familiar not that long ago. If there is a silver lining to this outbreak, it is the renewed focus on getting Australia's population vaccinated. As of this week, just 3% of Australians have been vaccinated, a rate that lags a long way behind our counterparts in Europe and North America. And while the vaccination in those places is arguably more urgent, the latest outbreaks are reminding Australians that vaccination is our only sustainable path to a new normal at the other side of the COVID-19 pandemic. For many in Victoria, and in the case of other outbreaks across Australia, a return to the significant restrictions reminds us of the year that was and the profound changes to our lives and our organisations that the first rounds of lockdown entailed. No business was more affected than our guest today. Catherine Kirby is the CEO of Kids Like Us, an entrepreneurial community organisation that provides learning and emotional support, advocacy and peer support for twice exceptional students. Twice exceptional students are young people who have exceptional abilities but also a disability. Kids like us work with these young people and with parents and educational partners so that all twice exceptional students are identified and supported in a learning environment that meets their individual needs. Their work includes counselling, therapeutic interventions, well-being programs and peer and mentor-led programs. Like many organisations, Kids Like Us was predominantly a face-to-face model prior to the pandemic and we look forward to learning from Catherine about the experiences of her organisation during this extraordinary period. Catherine Kirby, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. My pleasure. So Catherine, in March last year when lockdown began, your organisation, I think as much as any, had to completely transform what you did and how you did it in just a matter of days when the distancing restrictions came in. It's a big question. Can you tell us what was Kids Like Us like sort of prior to the lockdown and tell us what what those first days and weeks meant? What was the transformation you had to go through when the lockdown first came in? So Kids Like Us is very much a face-to-face, in-person service. We work with young people uh, who are twice exceptional, uh, and that means that they have a a high ability or a gift, but they also have a disability or a difference or a mental health issue. So a lot of our work is about relationships, and those relationships are are formed and ongoing very much in person. And a lot of group work, um, some sort of one-on-one work, but it's it's a busy building with a constant movement of people in and out and and different groups taking place and lots and lots of interactions. So last year in March when we 
heard the announcement that uh, you know we were going to be moving to an online platform or we weren't allowed into work our first reaction was well how can we continue to deliver the services that we do in a, a good quality connected way but through a virtual space we didn't have an awful lot of technology in our workplace. Um, you know, we have laptops and we work from those for administrative purposes, but certainly not in the way that we interact with our client base. So the first thing we had to do was to make sure that everyone, all of our staff actually had a computer. A lot of them didn't have laptops. So we were really fortunate. We've got some very good friends in the corporate world who donated some laptops to us. We then had to work out what platform to use. And I think like a lot of the rest of the world. Teams, Zoom, Skype were all a bit of an anomaly to us. More importantly, we had to look at what our clients needed. So we were looking at the students and the young people we'd be working and with and what would they be expected, which tools would they be expected to use when they actually started to engage in their school online learning. We, we went down the, the Microsoft route and Teams was the obvious choice because that's what many of the schools would be working with. Uh, and the, so the first thing we had to do was to set ourselves up. So within four days, uh, with a lot of support, we made sure that all of our staff had appropriate devices. They had access to Wi-Fi at home. And then uh, I tried and get my head around um, Microsoft 365 and set up the whole system and then train the staff. And we had some staff who aren't used to using technology. And there was an awful lot of peer support. Some you know, a lot of our younger team that they're all over it. They were training some of the, the, the less experienced technology staff that we work with. And within four days, we were satisfied that everybody could get online from an internal team perspective. Our next plan was we had three weeks when the schools were essentially closed. It was one week of term and two weeks of school holiday. And we knew that by the time they went back from school holiday, they would be expected to access their school learning online. So whereas normally we would take those two weeks off and the staff would have a break, pretty much everybody worked. And it was a case of just one by one, everyone connecting with their clients, with the students, whether it was over a device or on the telephone, to really just make sure that they were happy to actually log into a system so they could connect with school once they were asked to do schoolwork online. And there was an awful lot of work being done over the telephone. If you know, turn your camera on, let's have a look and see what button to press. No, not that button, you know, press the red button. Oh, no, you just cut me off and, and starting over and over again. So the patience of the staff team was really quite phenomenal during that time. And I think that actually lent itself to a success of a lot of our students then felt when they went back to school, they could actually access what they were being asked to do. So that was the first few days, <laughs> which was huge. Tell us a bit more about the experience of students. So this is just as your organisation is from in-person to online, that schooling going from in-person to online is a, is a huge change, hopefully a, for a slightly more digitally literate generation than, than I'm in. What did you learn from their experiences? How well did the students you work with adapt and what did you find were some of their biggest challenges? Uh, they actually on the whole adapted really well. It was a new experience for them. There was a lot of anxiety around would they even be able to, you know, get onto that English lesson? Would they would they want to be seen? Do they have their camera off? Do they have their camera on? We also had to work with the parents. It was quite surprising how much support the parents needed and also how, how much comfort the parents needed to be assured that their student did know what they were doing. And in most cases, the students were probably more capable than their parents. So... The students, once they had that confidence 
uh, and that's what it that, that period was about really was it about giving them the confidence uh, they were good and they actually thrived in that environment once they got there part of the spot you provide to students is, is tutoring you mentioned that the sort of needs around tutoring change through that process as well they did so Normally we might have a student come to us and they might have an hour of tutoring a week or they might have an hour of counselling or peer support during that week. And what we found changed was that instead of having one big block, they wanted more uh, support, but little bits of it each day. So it was a bit like having a window into their home or them having a window out. Part of our team is quite a young team. Usually they're, they're young people who are at university and they're really great peer mentors to our younger students. And they came back to me and said, look, can we change the way we're working so that instead of doing an hour a week, we're actually doing 10 minutes every day. So it was either in small groups or one-on-one. They just have these regular little check-ins every single day and even over weekends often with the clients. Uh, And that was really important because it just gave them that security and that comfort that there was somebody out there they could talk to who was outside of their house. And we actually developed a whole new program, which we've continued to run called Connect. We actually had a higher uptake on that program than anything else that we've done in the last few years. And we had students who would normally feel anxious about you know, coming out of the house or coming to, to our centre to join in a, a peer group. In this forum where they were online, they, they could hide behind, with their camera off. They didn't have to speak. They could just be part of this virtual community. And eventually, over time, they became braver and they actually engaged more and more. The great part was listening to the laughter. So, you know, you, you heard the banter, you heard the chat, and I quite often jump into a session just to say hello. And you just hear them having fun, uh, which was awesome. You mentioned parents a second ago. Uh, tell me a bit about their experience and, and what sort of support did you need to provide for them during that period? So our existing parents that we work with uh, needed more support. They were really unsure about this new online world that their kids were connecting with. They were really nervous about the amount of device time that their children were taking up. And so we actually increased our parent support from being a monthly you know, tea and chat type event to twice a week. And that was run by our wellbeing team. So our psychologists actually ran that to, to twice a week and parents would just jump online. They had their own experiences of lockdown, you know, their, their own frustrations and their own struggles of having their family inside their house all the time, as, as we all did. But a lot of the, the concern was, you know, is my child learning? Am I offering the right things? How do I support better? You know, what do I do in these situations? It was, certainly was a, an increased need for supporting parents. We then had a lot of new parents approach us. So we went from having usually sort of five referrals a week to 10 plus referrals a day. And I think a lot of that was around where, you know, all of a sudden school was in their living room and they were realizing the challenges that their children were facing with learning. We work with students who, who often have learning difficulties. So they were kind of you know, seeing just how challenged their child was in accessing schoolwork. And that has rolled on. That's still ongoing. They want more support. They, they were finding that the schoolwork, you know, their child couldn't do it. And they certainly couldn't do it independently. Or it wasn't enough and their, their child was bored or it wasn't engaging enough for them. So, you know, there was a lot of realisation of you, know, you can't just drop your child off at the school gate and pick them up that afternoon and know that school's covered, you actually had it in front of you. And I think for a lot of people, it became very confronting. And we had an awful lot of phone calls of referrals and people want parents wanting help. And that's confronting in terms of their own experience supporting their kids, but you're suggesting maybe also realising a bit more about the educational experience their kids was, hap- was happening when it's happening right in front of them. Yes, absolutely. 
Yeah. And a lot of reflecting on their experience too. The children we work with, what the children are experiencing are also what the parents experienced in their school day, uh, you know, when they were at school. And it was bringing back an awful lot of memories, I think, for them as well, of just how hard it can be. So the staff at Kids Like Us are made up of different areas, even though we all collaborate together. So we have a wellbeing area, which is made up of counsellors, psychologists, youth workers. We then have sort of another area which is made up of teaching and learning. So they tend to be very experienced, very well qualified, very professional teachers. Some of them are are retired from teaching in school and have, have chosen to come in and work with us because it's such a niche and specialist area. We then have our intern team which is made up of university students several of them are alumni they've actually gone through our programs themselves so they know what it feels like or they are studying to become psychologists or teachers and then we have our administrative team now the admin team was obviously working incredibly hard because of all the system changes that we were doing so we were talking to each other constantly and then all of the, the rest of the team all worked together naturally and they just became more involved and they share a lot of information and a lot of knowledge between them. The intern team became the ones who were really a strong conduit with our clients because they were the ones who were coming back to me and saying, well, look, you know, they were doing their own online study themselves in lectures, but they had a quick half hour between lectures. So could they jump on with a student or a group of students and do some connect work in between their study? They were the ones that gave us a lot of feedback and a lot of insight in how some of our young people were were doing well or not doing so well that we could then refer on to the wellbeing team who could then follow that up through the parents or through more intense programs. And we're almost 18 months after that process. How has demand for your services sort of changed over that period? And is that level of intensity still still arising or what does that journey look like for you as an organisation? It slowed down a bit once um, everyone came out of lockdown, I think. That was probably twofold. I think families actually started to, real, to to enjoy being able to move about again and to go out and the slightly slower pace of life and to suddenly go back into sport practice and netball and swimming and barbecues and, and all the things that you know, we were used to as our everyday busy lives was quite hard. So the initial reaction coming out of lockdown, we had quite a few parents who were quite stressed going back into this the busyness of school and after school activities. Through the summer, uh, we started to have an increase in the requirement for tutoring and for extra learning support because a lot of um, families felt that their students were had fallen behind educationally and they wanted to catch up uh, and to make sure that they were ready for the new school year. And then as we've gone through the year, what's happened in the last few months is that we've had a pretty drastic increase in mental health support requests. And there's you know, a real shortage at the moment of mental health support, I think probably globally. And we certainly get a lot of phone calls where people have been trying to find an appointment and try and find the right support for their child. And it's just not available or there is a six month waiting list. So certainly there's an increase in demand in, in mental health uh, requirements for children. You mentioned that feeling amongst parents of maybe enjoying the slower pace a little bit. What are your observations about that as someone who, who yeah, works particularly with parents and, and kids of going through schooling? Are there lessons for that that we can take forward about a, a happier pace of life? Or do you see that as being something that will snap back pretty quick? <laughs> You're talking to somebody who's got ADHD and does a million things at once. I don't know what a slow pace of life is. I think that parent, or I think that families will become more selective in what they engage in. We're looking for high quality, high caliber, engaging activities for our children. 
not necessarily something which is you know, a strong academic focus, but certainly something which is around social engagement more. It's a lot more about friendships and around relationships. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge that we're seeing is that we had a year where young people didn't get to practice social engagement. They didn't get to practice friendships or experience who they are, you know, across all age groups, but particularly those really key years that that kind of year six, the year seven, the year 12s, and they missed out. And so I think there's a lot of work there to be done for, for those particular ages around just growth and development of young people and being an adolescent. So where, you know, where you learn who you are, you try on different personas and particularly a lot of the young people that we work with, quite difficult anyway to have that time where you can try out what kind of a person do I want to be? Do I like sport? Do I like drama? Do I like public speaking? Do I want to be this person or that person? And they do very deliberately try out friendships and they try out relationships and they try out different experiences and do they want to be someone that learns or someone that doesn't engage in class and it's a very deliberate act and a lot of that you know they just missed out on so I think that's going to be quite interesting how that affects them long term. You also mentioned sadly the demand for mental health services at the moment I wonder if you tell us a bit more about that we just finished a, a Royal Commission into our mental health system here in Victoria and the sort of lack of access to, to those services has been pretty widely um, people becoming aware, more aware of it than we were before. Certainly the challenges for, for youth in that area. What, can you tell us a bit more about what you're seeing amongst your students and what you think we ought to be worrying about or, or doing about that over the short term? With mental health services, it's not the kind of thing that can wait six months. It's more urgent. It needs to be addressed immediately. And what I'm hearing is that there is a severe lack of services and it doesn't have to be crisis work. It's the just the everyday support that people need. And I get people phone me up and you know, they've, they've phoned 10 different psychologists or 10 different agencies and the books are closed or the waiting list is, you know, at least a 12 months long. And that's a really long time in a young person's life. And that can go from something which is relatively minor, you know, something that you can address and you can assist at this point. But if you wait six months, it becomes a significant mental health issue. So I think one of the key things that we need to address is how to improve access to the service. I take a lot of those phone calls and it's really hard when you've got a a parent crying on the end of the phone because their child is in significant distress and not to be able to help. And your point about the timeliness is well made too, that lack of an access to service today is very likely to mean situations deteriorate and, and the need for more in the or more in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's something quite significant. On an ordinary year, if we can still remember what that looks like, I think having a, a rapid increase in demand for your services, a whole range of new services that you needed to deliver a technology transformation of your organisation and also your staff being in in difficult personal experiences that we all had during the pandemic. Any one of those things would be a full lid for a leader and and a a massive period of change for an organisation and you got hit by all four at once. I'd love to hear about how your organisation experienced that. What was it like for you and your staff? How did they handle that level of, of change and disruption? So whilst we moved everything online in terms of a virtual platform, what that actually meant in the back end is that we had to change all of our other systems. So our appointment booking system, our billing system, our finance system, everything actually had to change. So the kind of IT plan that you'd normally roll out gently over five or six years 
We did the first stage in four four days. Um, that just was intense with just no sleep, really. The other systems took probably about two months to bring in. There was an awful lot of risk taking. There were times when literally we, we downloaded a file, I saved it onto my desktop and said, so just hope, you know, that can work as a backup if this all goes wrong. There was quite a lot of those moments where you just kind of had everything crossed and hoped it worked. In terms of the team, we're really fortunate kids like us. We have an incredible team. A lot of our staff have been with us for quite a long time and they're all incredibly passionate about the work that they do. So yes, they were all experiencing their own challenges, but they stepped up, particularly our, our interns. You know, they were just always coming up with ideas and how they can support and how they can work faster and better and more efficiently. You know, I was very conscious of burnout and I was very conscious of making sure that the staff themselves kept connected. We stepped up our, our internal professional development. So we actually ended up with an eight-week program where every week, once a week, we all jumped on, on a Zoom call and the staff took it in turns to share an area of their expertise. Now, this is something if we had done it not in lockdown, in normal life, and we, you know, we held it in our rooms, we'd have some of them turn up, but certainly not everybody would turn up for that because everyone's lives were busy. But there was a real sense of wanting to support each other, of wanting to learn off each other, of wanting to become you know, better at what they do. I was really impressed that you know, that, that internal professional development and growth was something they wanted to do when everything else was so challenging around them. That was really strong. And that's continued actually throughout the whole year. How do you interpret that? I must say, I find that really interesting and surprising as well. We've spoken to previous guests about how actually trying to encourage leaders to keep a focus on professional development. Now now that we're 18 months into a pandemic, there's a risk that those things would drop off and actually the need to encourage those things. But whereas you're in the middle of it and, and staff are actually quite eager to engage with those sorts of things. How, how do you interpret that? I think a lot of it is around the fact that they, that all the staff are very engaged in the work they do. We see terrific growth and positive outcomes when we're working with a young person or with young people and we we kind of work with them over time and you know it's a team approach so nobody within kids like us works in isolation it's very much everything we do is holistic and it's very much a team so you don't have any one person just working on the thing they do you know everyone's talking everybody's working to improve the outcomes and to achieve success for every single child we work with and and I think because we already have that that became exaggerated that, you know, that was, it's really important that everybody achieves success and that we all work together to create that success. So I really think that it comes down to that basic team mentality, that basic team emotion of wanting to work together. Mm. And it's something that I'm really proud of. I'm really proud of our staff. I think that's wonderful to hear. I, I'm, I'm thinking too of, of the places in which staff get energy from, and sometimes we get energy from rest, but also sometimes we get we get energy from our colleagues and our shared mission and our and those sorts of things. And it sounds like this process was certainly building that for you in the midst of a very difficult time. Yeah, there was a lot of fun. There was a lot of laughter. They're a good bunch of people. Like many organisations, I suppose, similar to you, a big part of your journey has been migrating a face-to-face service online, both the pains of that and also the opportunities of that. I wonder as we look forward and, and hopefully towards a future that has a pandemic and physical restrictions less ever present in our lives, what have you learned from that experience of engaging students online? What do you think you'll be taking forward as, as you move to being able to be both face-to-face? What are some of the elements that you'd like to continue with that and take forward? 
It's actually been a really positive experience for our organisation. We are able to work now with people across different platforms and different areas. The, the, the geographical, geographical boundaries have gone. So whereas before people had to access us in our rooms, we can now very easily jump online. And we're working now with people across Australia. Um, we've even gone global. We've got one young man in Singapore that we're working with. And it also has got real potential to increase our reach. And so we can get into more rural areas. We can, we can actually start to work in areas where the young people perhaps can't get to us or don't have a parent who will support them to get to us. So there's a lot of um, strategic work we're doing now at a board level around, well, how do we take advantage of that? And how do we actually get into those areas? And how, instead of people finding us, how do we now find them? You know, we know that in Victoria alone, there's 30,000 twice exceptional young people. We work with about 1,000. You know, there's that big cohort that we can get into now. I actually think that the outcome is actually really positive. On a previous conversation, we spoke with um, about Minus 18 with Gemma Saunders. And she just talked about the the reach that became possible online, particularly for rural kids. It does provide an opportunity. You're, you're down Bayside. That there's a lot of places that are a long way from there. That it does provide an opportunity to reach these groups of people and create communities. I suppose that aren't physically possible. I mean, even in the last few months, where people have slightly sniffle, you can't go outside until you've had your COVID test and everything else. We're now able to say, well, you might have a sniffle, but we can still talk to you. You might be at home because you're waiting for a test result, but we can still have a counselling appointment or we can still jump on and do some tutoring or we can still connect with you just because you're not able to physically leave your house. We just swap the appointment from being in person to being a, a virtual appointment. It's benefited in that way as well. And you also mentioned it's an opportunity for people who are less comfortable engaging face-to-face or, or even sort of want to sort of try it out first. What are some options that you've created there? So our Connect program, you know, has been so successful and it's continued post-pandemic. And some of the things that we found was we had some young people who didn't want to come out in person. They didn't want to join, walk into a room of people just due to their anxiety. or And yet they were able and willing to join us online. So they might not have turned their screen on, they might not have turned their sound on, but they were present. And then over time, when they realized it was you know, not such a big, scary place or that the people were friendly and they weren't going to be teased or feel out of place or that they felt comfortable, they began to engage more and more. Uh, we have some young people who then when we returned to face to face felt able and comfortable to join us in person, whereas previously, you know, they wouldn't have had that comfort level. And one young person in particular not only started to come face to face for our Connect programs, but has now also managed to become comfortable enough that they've started to return to school, whereas they'd previously been school refusing because they just hadn't felt comfortable moving into a space with others. Are there elements that you found really didn't work online? What, what were the areas that you were quickest to ditch Zoom and, and get back face to face? online doesn't work for everybody so you know a lot of what we do is still about relationships and particularly for some of our very young students so we're kind of looking at you know prep year one year twos to ask them to be online and to engage just through a, a little screen is quite difficult so it's a lot easier to work with them when we're in the same room There was a beautiful story that came out this week in this lockdown where there was a a social emotional program that we run uh, normally face to face at our rooms and it jumped online last week. The the facilitator, who's one of our counsellors, just sat back and watched these two young people had this conversation with each other 
using the social skills, having a great conversation, interacting. And they were talking about, they were comfortable enough because they'd met each other face to face to have this online conversation about friendship. And are you my friend? And what does that mean? And, you know, well, you've got this, you know, collection of toys and let's talk about it. And they were, she said it just, it just made her heart melt. It was just beautiful seeing them use the skills that they'd learnt in person and now practicing it, but in a virtual setting, which is hard. It's hard for us adults. It's even harder for kids. That's extraordinary. Maybe as a way of finishing up our conversation, as you look forward, hopefully on the path towards recovery, what are the things that you're thinking about for your students? What are some of the long-term issues that you're worried about? But particularly maybe what are some of the opportunities that are available to us as we try and move on a recovery and, and try and keep that energy around building back to something better? The missed opportunities are those that we mentioned previously. So the rites of passage, the ability to, for, for growth and for development, particularly those adolescent years. Those are the missed opportunities. Whether they have a long-term impact or not, we'll, we'll have to wait to see. In terms of opportunities, the young people have a lot of opportunities in this sort of increased way of communicating that we now have. You know, you do not have to be sitting inside a classroom or inside a room to communicate with the rest of the world. And we always knew that that existed, but now it's, it's very real and we've all experienced it. The ability to access learning, for example, you know, we had young people through the lockdown who were 14 years old accessing open university units on astrophysics, accessing learning that they wouldn't have considered previously, which they can now you know, get to. I think there's a huge amount of benefit and opportunity that is coming out. We just have to ensure that sort of we continue to enhance it and to, to work with it and don't forget that it exists. Catherine Kirby, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.